Thank you. Good morning. My name is Steve. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It is my week to preach, and that means we are in Mark chapter 10. But before we read the scripture today, I want to address the fathers in the room. Happy Father's Day to all of you. And uh, I want to say one thing. Um, A word about dads before we get into this teaching. Psalm 103 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So the comparison is between earthly fathers showing compassion to their children and the father in heaven showing compassion to his children. Now, after C.S. Lewis published The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, he had endless debates with people, or he had to correct endless amounts of people who insisted that the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was an allegory of the Christian gospel. He kept saying, it is not. First of all, he's a professor of literature. He should know. He's like, listen, this is not written in the genre of allegory. It is not an allegory. Second of all, he just said, it's a It's a good story. I just wanted to write a good story, that's all. And the fact that the story that has most captivated my heart and soul has a dying and rising God in the middle of it, it's no surprise that that showed up in my story as well. But even though he was firm in the fact that it was not an allegory, he did smile to think that the story of Aslan could be something like a pre-gospel story, which is to say a child would read these stories and find that they love Aslan. They find that their hearts are broken in particular parts, that their hearts are exploding with joy in other parts, and they find that they love Aslan, and then when they actually hear the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time, when it really sets in, they're like, wait a minute, I've heard this story, and I love it. He, he loved that aspect of it. Now, back to Psalm 103, I think that's what David is after in the psalm. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. There's nothing that we Christians treasure more than the compassion of God, his loving kindness, his mercy, his extended and everlasting grace. Because without those attributes of God, without his grace, without his mercy, without his kindness, without his forgiveness, we of all people will be the most pitiable, wretched, poor, lost, and we will find ourselves floundering in destruction. So we love the compassion of God. Because of his compassion, we are made into sons and daughters. And we have a place at his table, a heritage in his family. Now, I've often wished that I could have been the one to write The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I mean, <laughs> just, just to have left the world with something that beautiful would have made my heart glad. But what this verse is telling me in Psalm 103, and all of us fathers is that we fathers get to teach our children about the compassion of our Heavenly Father. One day, when our children really hear the good news of the gospel, of the everlasting grace, kindness, mercy, and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ in His atoning death and resurrection, they'll say, I know that story. 
I've heard that before, and I love it. And I know that any honest father is like, um, I think I'm teaching my children the exact opposite of that, but the word of grace goes out to you too and to me. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to us fathers. His grace is endless, and he will not let your children fall to the ground. So, a blessing to all the fathers who are with us. May you be so overcome with the tender mercies of God that your children find a deep well of compassion within you. And may it be that one day when they hear of the mercies of God, they will have been well prepared for that story by our compassion towards them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's fathers said, Amen. Mark chapter 10. Let's get into it. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mowage. <laughs> I don't have time. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself, though. Okay. Now, I mean, it's, it's, some of this is heavy stuff. We got to start. Let's start by laughing. Okay. Now, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark the last few months. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what we've been saying is that in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus shows up on the scene. And what he's doing is redefining for us what is the good life. And today we come to a teaching about marriage and divorce. And frankly, I don't know of another teaching about uh, in the Gospels of Jesus how he defines the good life that we as 21st century people are more likely to resist or worse, dismiss. You see, we've been taught, taught through a thousand movies, a thousand novels, 
Television shows that marriage is the ultimate reward for true love. And marriage is the interpersonal arrangement inside of which all of our ultimate dreams will come true. All of our ultimate fulfillments will come. And what's astonishing to me is that even though, in general, our divorce rate is pretty high in this country, um, by and large, it doesn't seem to have cost us our belief in marriage as the place where we have our ultimate fulfillment. Because people who get divorced are statistically likely to get remarried again. You would think, you would think it's the opposite, right? People who have been divorced, um, they've been to the puppet show and they've seen the strings, right? They know that the, the, man behind, the wizard is just the man behind the curtain. And I should know, I mean, I, I'm not divorced myself, but I come from a family where divorce is like a recreational sport. Uh, it's very prevalent in my family. I've seen it up close. I understand. But, but they, we keep getting remarried. Why? I think it's because we would say it's not that marriage has failed us. It's just that person. And so people go on getting remarried in the hopes that as they pass on again into this new relational arrangement, finally they will have found the good life. Finally, this one will bring me ultimate fulfillment. But Jesus is going to teach us today that he has a fundamentally different idea of what makes for the good life when it comes to marriage. And the teaching is profoundly simple, like easy to understand, and it's this, what God has joined together let no man separate. Now, I know who I'm talking to here. Some of us are single and hope to get married. Other, others of us are happily married. Uh, some others are married, but you've arrived in the land of disenchantment. You've become aware that your marriage is not going to be the place of your ultimate happiness. You may have even come to the place where you feel like your spouse is actually draining any vestige of happiness out the bottom of your soul, and maybe you would never actually do it. Sometimes you find yourself daydreaming about divorce. That would just be so much easier. Others of us are in the process of divorce. Lawyers are involved. Hearts are broken. All is bleak. Others of us are divorced. The process is complete. Others of us are pursuing remarriage or are already remarried. Knowing this, I want to assure you, whatever your situation, I'm not here to condemn you, okay? I admit, <laughs> you, you read the passage with me, Jesus is giving us some strong medicine here. And I'm not going to hesitate to explain this teaching fully to you. On the other hand, I know marriage and divorce is one of those places where our hearts are broken most profoundly. So I'm, you should just know at the outset, I'm going to handle you as carefully as I know how, okay? So if you're bracing for a beating, you can just relax. I'm, I'm not here for that. Okay, so in order to think about what Jesus is saying here in this teaching, let's look at it under three headings. Number one, what marriage is. Number two, what divorce is. And number three, I'm going to try to apply it. Now, I'm already going to tell you that I, I will not be able to get to everything in this passage. I need two or three more sermons to do that. But I'm going to try to get to the heart of it as best I can. So if you have any questions about the other stuff, just come see me later. Okay, number one, what marriage is. So Jesus 
in the middle of this teaching is answering a question brought to him by the Pharisees. And we'll get to the question in a few minutes, but let's see how he defines marriage first. Because unless we have a picture of what marriage is, we'll never understand why he's saying what he's saying about divorce. So here's what he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 6. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Verse 7, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So when we go all the way back to the beginning, to the first marriage, what we see is that marriage is rooted in the fabric of creation. We have to start there. Marriage is rooted in the fabric of creation. The first thing to notice is that marriage is by God's design, not ours. It says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. In other words, God made man and woman for each other. The second thing to notice is that a joining occurs between the man and the woman in marriage. It says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, this is a strange and mysterious thing. What does it mean that two become one flesh? Now, it's an obvious reference to the most intimate marital act, which I'll leave uh, at that since there are children among us. Um, but there's more going on here, much more going on here. Some people interpret it to mean that the man and the wife, when they become married, become spiritually one. Like one spirit, one mind, but that's not what it says. It says the two become one flesh. So what does this mean? Well, he defines it for us um, in Genesis. It refers to the phrase, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, that doesn't mean much in this culture. But in that culture, in the ancient Israelite culture, in which a child's duty to honor their father and mother was of utmost importance, and to forsake your family was punishable by death, like this meant something. For, for marriage to be the place where you leave father and mother, forsake them, literally speaking, forsake father and mother and become one with another person. Here's why. Now, in a very, in a very real way, um, parents and children are one flesh, right? You, you look at my children, um, their skin looks like mine and my wife's, their DNA shares the same codes, their eyes resemble ours, their hands have grown into similar shapes as ours. If anyone needs a kidney, like, we're the first ones that we're going to talk to, um, they are quite literally flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. That's that's what a family is. Their blood is my blood. My flesh is their flesh. And therefore, what it means that a man and a woman upon marriage become one flesh is that they are now related to one another on the same level as a brother and a sister, as a parent and a child. Now, if we just get past the potential awkwardness of that, it's a very beautiful teaching. A new family has been made. And family is forever. 
By marriage, a new bloodline has been established, never to be forsaken. So the two become one flesh, like a lock and a key are one mechanism, like a bow and a violin are one instrument. The two have become one flesh, a new family. So when the Pharisees come asking Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, his answer is obvious. No. No. Like, can a brother divorce a sister? Can a child divorce his parents? Like, I know, technically speaking, you can't. But it's, we, we, we would hear about that and say something is deeply wrong with that. Your family, you don't do that. And so if you understand what marriage is, Jesus is saying, then you'll already know the answer to your question. But there's more to marriage than what we receive in Genesis 1. That, that, that's what we get. He, he, Jesus, in his teaching, reaches back to Genesis 1. He says, here's the meaning of marriage. This is what it's about. This is where it comes from. This is God's intent for it. But if you, if you open up the scope and you look in the entire biblical um, revelation, oh, there is so much more to marriage than just that. If we, if we get to the prophets, we start hearing the Lord refer to Israel as his bride. We'll get to that more later. But it's an astonishing thing. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he refers to himself as the bridegroom of his people. And his people are the bride. And then when Jesus parts the curtain in the book of Revelation just a little bit, he shows us that the end of all creation, the end of history is consummated in a marriage feast. Christ has finally married his bride and we celebrate with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there's something much greater happening in a man and a woman getting married than we initially see on the surface of Genesis. And the Apostle Paul tells us exactly what that is in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, and I, we're going to skip over the potentially difficult parts here because there's a greater point to be made. We'll come back to it some other time. He says, Ephesians 5, 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Here it is. Even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, stop. What mystery? The mystery he just said. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. What does that refer to? A man, a woman, one flesh, marriage. He says, this mystery, marriage, is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now catch your breath for a second. The marriage of a man and a woman refers to Christ and the church. And he says, this mystery 
is profound. Now, in biblical language, the word mystery is not like um, a puzzle. You know, you got all the pieces and they're all scattered around and you're trying to figure out how each one, if if only we could figure out does this tab fit here and does that tab fit, if only we could figure that out, then we would understand the mystery. That's not what he's talking about. That's not a mystery, biblically speaking. A mystery in the Bible is something that has been previously hidden but is now being made clear, that is now being made manifest to the people of God. And so he says, prior to... Paul writing Ephesians chapter 5, people have been getting married for millennia. Like, lots of marriages, millions, billions, I don't even know how many, lots of marriages. And he's saying, now at this time, a mystery is being made plain. The man and the woman getting married, there's more to it than a man and a woman getting married. This marriage, this institution, this union, this one flesh is a living parable to teach us what is true about our Lord. He is our husband. We are his bride. And because of his saving death and resurrection, a new family has been created. An unbreakable kinship has been established, never to be broken. Okay. Now that we've established what marriage is, let's talk about divorce. Number two, what divorce is. Start in verse two. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, um, now we're going to talk about divorce. And I need to tell you that there was a, there's a section, verse uh, 12 and 13, if I'm not mistaken, where he says that, uh, I just, let me say this by parenthetical remark. Uh, he says that um, whoever divorces his wife and marries another is committing adultery. Whoever, and if she divorces her husband and remarries, she commits adultery against him. I'm not touching that today, not because I can't, but because I don't have time. And here, I'll just say this. Um, if you have questions about that, let me know. I, I formerly believed that that is exactly what it sounded like. I, after some study, I've come to believe that what that means is it's, it's not referring to all marriages. It's referring to one particular marriage, that of Herod and Herodias. Um, if you go look at John the Baptist's criticism of Herod and Herodias and their marriage, um, I think that's what he's referring to. So I'm going to leave that there. Again, maybe some other day we'll, we'll pick it up. So there's that. Now, it's obvious the Pharisees are testing him. They're not genuinely seeking Jesus' answer here. And how do I know? Well, their question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then he asks, what does Moses say? In other words, what does the law say? To which they tell him exactly what the law says. So they, they already know the answer to their question. Like, it's, it's clear they're not genuinely seeking. They already knew the answer to their own question. And according to Deuteronomy 24, which is what they're quoting, a man is permitted to write a certificate of divorce and to send the woman away. And, you know, later rabbinic writings, um, 
took this and, and expanded on it uh, because the conditions are shockingly um, vague. Uh, later rabbinic writing said you could divorce your wife uh, if she burnt your dinner. <laughs> um, if you also, if you found a woman who was more attractive than her in the town, um, that was grounds for divorce. And so Jesus, um, so, so the Pharisees look at that and they say, okay, that's it. The Bible says we are permitted to divorce a spouse in marriage and seemingly for any reason. But Jesus puts the kibosh on thinking like that. He says, yes, that's what Deuteronomy says, no doubt. But Moses gave you that commandment because of your hardness of heart, not because it was good. Now, what's going on here? I mean, we have to be careful not to read our contemporary societal um, norms back into that ancient culture. We've established already that, um, that as an institution rooted in the created order, marriage is indissoluble, unbreakable, separated only by death. But apparently that didn't stop the ancient Israelite men from divorcing their wives for almost any reason. So in a culture like theirs, a woman was particularly vulnerable to grinding poverty if she was not married to and attached to the family of a man. So the scene is this, men are divorcing their wives everywhere and sending them out into a life of suffering and disgrace. And the only thing that woman had to do in that particular culture is to get remarried, and she would be provided for and have a life, hopefully, of plenty. But if she remained unmarried, her life was very difficult, lots of suffering. But here's the real problem. If that woman finds a man who is, all other things being equal, willing to remarry her, it's, it's her word and her word alone that says she's truly divorced. That man, if he cares for his life at all, will not marry her because adultery is a capital offense for both parties. So by remarrying this woman on the grounds that she says she's divorced, who knows for sure, that, that could be a real problem. And so women were... Women in that culture were um, left to destitution because men were so easily divorcing them. So what, so what Deuteronomy 24 is doing is saying, okay, creationally, divorce is not permitted. That's not what marriage is for. A new family has been made. But y'all don't seem to care about that. You're divorcing your wives everywhere. You're leaving them to a life of suffering. So in that case, give them a certificate of divorce. Give them proper documentation so that they might have a chance at getting remarried and living a life outside of suffering and poverty. That's the point of the um, commandment. So when you look at it in its context... The text these Pharisees are quoting as a blank check to divorce their wives isn't what they think it is. The law is not to give men license, but to protect the women who are so casually, who they are so casually sloughing off into ruin. 
That's the point of Deuteronomy 24. So Jesus doesn't interpret that law like the Pharisees do. The Pharisees see in those verses the freedom to send women away. Jesus sees it as God lovingly cleaning up the mess of the hard-hearted who insist on divorcing their wives. So, context. Back to our original question. What is divorce? If marriage is God joining together two people, then divorce is undermining the authority of God by separating it. If marriage is a kind of prophetic parable of the mystery of Christ and his church, then divorce says that that prophecy, that prophetic word, is false. Divorce, according to Jesus' teaching, is a concession for the hard-hearted who cannot, and more importantly, will not bow to the authority of God in creation. Divorce is less like dissolving a contract as it is undergoing a surgical procedure. Okay, those are strong words. Let me pause for a moment again and explain the larger context of the scriptural teaching on divorce. This is, all I've said so far is just what, what is Jesus saying in Mark chapter 10? The larger teaching on scriptural divorce. Um, when we open up the scope a little wider, we see in Matthew's version of this teaching, the same teaching, uh, that Jesus gives an exception for adultery. Everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of adultery, etc., etc. Apparently, adultery is grounds for a biblical divorce. If we open it even wider, we find Paul's teaching on marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, and there's another exception, namely abandonment. Now, I don't have time to define all the potential cases that could be categorized as adultery or abandonment, um, even though, I mean, we are, I'm tempted to do so because we are shockingly liberal with those terms as they apply to our own happiness. Um, Even so, I'll, I'll just leave it there. Jesus already gave us the warning that unbiblical divorce was a concession for the hard-hearted. And the only way you know if you're really being hard-hearted is to ask other people who love Jesus and who love you. And supposing they do love you and supposing you're willing to listen to them, they will tell you. End parentheses. Now, notice even in the exceptions that I've listed, nowhere does it say that divorce is required in these scenarios. We are blessed to have several marriages in this room who have survived infidelity. And we never tire of hearing those stories because if marriage is a parable of Christ and his church, then the marriage that has survived the ravaging effects of marital infidelity is an even clearer representation of that relationship. Let me just tell you the story, which I'll piece together from the prophets. First, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16. He says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now, this may seem innocuous to us, but this is not a compliment. He was saying they were born of hated pagan nations, no way born into royalty or any such thing. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. 
nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. This child was cast away, hated, not cared for in the slightest. Nothing in this child provoked pity in the passerby until... And when I passed by you, says the Lord, and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus were you adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. A completely undeserved and gracious love from a husband filled with compassion and kindness. And you would think that coming from such humble roots, that this bride would always remain filled with gratitude and wonder at the loving kindness of her husband who had given her so much, but not so. Verses 15 and 16. But you trusted in your beauty. And played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them you played the whore. The like has never been seen, nor shall ever be. She broke covenant with her God, scorned his kindness, and set off on her own. The Lord has every right to write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. He has every right to press charges so that she might endure the death penalty. But he cannot send her away. He cannot divorce his wife. So in order to win her back, the bridegroom arrived in history and satisfied the broken justice of her offense by himself submitting to the death penalty. And in this way, he showed that there is no end to the depths of his covenant love. Even her treachery could not turn him away. It only became an occasion for a more profound sacrifice on his part. Praise be to God. Now, I said I would 
apply this at the end. With a couple of minutes, let me try. Um, we're short on time. Let me just say one thing. Um, we didn't get to the teaching about children and the kingdom and receiving the kingdom like a child. I'll just pull it in here. Um, what do we tell our children regarding promises? We teach them to keep their promise even when it hurts because we know that the character that they will receive by keeping the promise through pain is more beneficial to them than the pleasure that they would receive by breaking the promise. Or if not pleasure, relief. When, we, we st- when you started this game, you promised you'd give that toy to him if he won. You must do it, even though it hurts. And we got our children to keep their promise even through their tears. And so I would say the application is this. If you are in a position to do so, which is to say you're still married, keep your vows even through tears. You see, we grow up and our children hear us break promises or tell white lies and they call us on it, and we say, it's complicated. When you get older, like, you can't do it. It's clear, but when you get older, it's complicated. And there's no doubt adult life is more complicated than a child's life. But Jesus invites us to trust him as a little child, to enter the kingdom as children. And I know that the marriage vow is very complicated. It comes with all sorts of conditions that we never knew about, when we signed the dotted line. Maybe to keep that promise, it will mean tears all your days. And that kind of suffering is no small thing to endure. I know that. But remember, you and your marriage are prophets. And which prophet ever lived a charmed life? Their life is full of suffering and sorrow. Expect it. This is the normal cause of life, the normal course of life, excuse me. And I know, I know what I'm, I know this sounds crazy. I know, I can hear myself. I'm amplified. I get it. It sounds crazy. Stay married, even if you're absolutely miserable. Yes. And that, listen, That only makes sense if there truly is a life to come. A miserable marriage will really test whether we believe all our happiness is to be found in this life or if there really is a life of utter joy and fulfillment to come. If that's true, We must not mind a little suffering here. The Bible says that our life is but a breath. It's a mist in the morning, and by the afternoon, it has passed away. This breath may be full of sorrow because of your husband. It may be full of sorrow because of your wife. But fear not. One day, you will open resurrected eyes. You will enter into an everlasting marriage 
in which all of your hopes and dreams shall be fulfilled. You shall be loved. You shall be cared for. And all shall be well. Amen and amen. Now, we come to the table of our Lord as we do each and every week. This is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's just a taste. Here, we get to see and taste and ingest and metabolize a very particular truth. And that is that Christ will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. When you eat this bread and you drink this cup at Christ's table, what he is saying to you is, I will never divorce you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You have been made mine. We are family now. And I love you. So, for all who belong to Christ Jesus, for all who are the bride of Christ and want to taste what his fidelity is like, then come. You are invited to this table. If, you, if you're not, if you, if, you don't, if you don't know that you have a place at this table, if you are not part of his people, why not? Where, where else will you go to find someone who will never leave you and never forsake you? All he asks is that you believe in his saving death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. And by the way, what you are believing is a gift. He gives it to you. There's nothing you have to muster. He only says, come. And you will become one of his children. So if that's you, then join us at this table. Believe. Confess, repent, and enjoy the foretaste of the supper. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, you know that <clears throat> teachings like this are hard for us to hear. Uh, we don't often uh, spend time in these places because, because we find that they expose parts of us that are deeply tender. And our sorrow is powerful. We thank you that your love is higher than our sorrow. It is deeper. It is wider. That all of our sorrows are swallowed up in the love of Jesus Christ and in his sacrifice for us. None of us can measure the height nor depth nor width, nor breadth of your love. We simply find ourselves there. And now as we come to your table, I pray that you would administer to us the assurance that we are bound to you in everlasting family, in everlasting kinship. Because if we have that assurance, we can endure an awful lot. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, you are welcome.